You're listening to the Keeler 1930 podcast. Any and all unauthorised use of the material will be in breach of copyright. The Keeler 1930 podcast is a niche media production. Hello there and welcome to the latest Keeler 1930 podcast. I'm Shane O'Donoghue on this Sunday and... Well, it's great to have your company. All of these uh, podcasts have kind of come about during COVID-19, self-isolation and all the rest of it, and all home-produced. And today's episode, if you will, is one that kind of centres on the year 1960, which was very significant around the world when you consider that uh, there was a presidential election in the United States, and a young Irish-American captured the imagination John Fitzgerald Kennedy, whose uh, grandparents had left New Ross back in the uh, late 1800s and settled in the United States, and indeed his maternal grandparents as well, the Fitzgeralds. A similar story, and he became the first Roman Catholic president of the United States of America. So that was global news. Here at home in Ireland, uh, Guinness sent their final barge from Dublin to Limerick uh, down the canal with uh, barrels of the black stuff that all ended in 1960 so uh, they developed newer ways of uh, transporting the legendary brew around the country in golfing terms Arnold Palmer was the talk of the golfing world although a bit of an unknown quantity on this side of the pond but that was all to change because he won the Masters and the US Open in 1960. And directly after winning at Cherry Hills outside Denver, Colorado, Palmer teamed up with uh, Sam Snead, arguably the uh, greatest, most natural talent in the sport. And together they were the United States team that would uh, take part in the Canada Cup, which is now known as the World Cup. And it was taking place at Port Marnock Golf Club. Now, after the event, Palmer and Sneed and all the greats of the game at the time would head over to St. Andrews for the Open Championship, and it was the Centenary Open. So Palmer was effectively targeting the Grand Slam. But as I said, he was a bit of an unknown quantity to Irish audiences. They all knew Sam Sneed, so many of them wanted to watch him. But for Palmer, it was a real education in Lynx golf, and the weather at the time, after a very dry spring, was incredible. It was very warm, and the crowds turned out in their thousands. And they may have even reached a peak of about 10,000 spectators for the final couple of rounds at Port Marnock Golf Club. And um, it's reported in a wonderful piece that uh, Dermot Gullis, who is effectively Ireland's Herbert Warren Wind, um, <clears throat> that the crowds would go silent for 10 to 15 seconds before each and every player would play a shot. And, you know, they had more access to the fairways and uh, there was a bit of a carnival atmosphere, but things would go quiet when a golfer needed to play. And this was effectively the Olympics of golf. It was maybe uh, about six years in existence now, the uh, Canada Cup at the time. And it was effectively a gathering of the golfing nations to A, celebrate the game, but also to engage in thorough competition and Ireland was on a little bit of a high at the time because Christy O'Connor and Harry Bradshaw had won the event in Mexico City in 1958. Uh, Harry Bradshaw was the pro at Port Marnock 
uh, but couldn't play. He was ill at the time, and his place was taken by the wonderful Norman Drew, who we have spoken to uh, on a couple of different podcasts in in recent weeks. So um, hello to you, Norman. Turned 88 last month and uh, is in fine spirits. Um, Christy O'Connor, I'm afraid, passed on to his eternal reward in 2016, but what a legacy he left and uh, what incredible work he did uh, in terms of building the foundation of professional golf and its image uh, around the world. But uh, they were the pairing for Ireland. And for South Africa, the great Bobby Locke was was back and a very popular fig- figure in, in, in global golf, obviously, and uh, a four-time Open champion and a previous winner of the Irish Open, it must be said as well, but a regular visit to, visitor to these shores. So he was teaming up with a young 24-year-old who was, at the time, the reigning Open champion. He had won at Muirfield the previous year. So he was a man called Gary Player, and he opened up in incredible style uh, in this four-round championship, which had an individual leaderboard and obviously a team leaderboard. But in the opening round, Gary Player carved out a 65, which was the new course record at Port Marnock Golf Club. So last week... On the 60th anniversary of the Canada Cup coming to Ireland, I wanted to, A, focus in on that, but also to get his reflections on, you know, his visits to Ireland, maybe play some music from the era, and uh, chat about all things golf, life, um, everything's up for grabs with Mr. Blair, but uh, also just to focus in on his uh, spectacular round and um, his participation with Mr. Bobby Locke in the Canada Cup. So I reached out to his daughter, Amanda, and tracked down Mr. Player. And after a round of golf, (laughs) he sat down in a beautiful sofa and uh, I spoke to him on FaceTime and just began by asking him how he was. Shane, I'm very, very well. And when I hear you talk about Ireland, I get goosebumps because I've had so many wonderful experiences there and it's such a wonderful country. I just love Ireland. The people are so happy. You go down to a pub and there's so many great stories being told. It's the only place I have two beers ever in my life. <laughs> and uh, also, you know, having known the O'Connors, uh, such wonderful ambassadors for your great country and your wonderful golf horses. And I'm, as you know, in the horse business and they some of the best horsemen and horsewomen in the world. So Ireland is something special. Can I ask you, was 1960, was it one, Was it your first time visiting Ireland? I mean, I know you'd been kind of quite the international travel leader even by then. You'd won an Open Championship the previous year at Muirfield. Um, was it Was it your debut on Irish soil? I don't think so. I think I'd been to Ireland. I went to Killarney. I played at Killarney, I would guess, and say in 1956. Oh, wow. That would be my guess. I played, and I love Killarney. And uh, then I went back there to play a TV match. And the day I left, they blew up that beautiful hotel right there. And I always remember Kalani, they had the most magnificent 18th hole, a bar three. Did you play there, Shane? I have played there, but not on that particular course because it's it's changed. Uh, obviously, that was Mahoney's point. And they now have the Killeen course, which is an amalgam of the two courses. Uh, the the you know the the one that did you speak of um yeah it was very very well known it was a it, and it is one of the most scenic parts of the country it's probably the tourist mecca Mr Player it's and it still remains Beautiful. so to this day 
then I won a tournament. I think it was Malone. Malone. In Northern Ireland, uh, yeah, in inland. Belfast. It was inland course, right? Belfast. But, but inland? Yep, yep. Yes, Belfast. Yes, I won the tournament there. I love that. But you know, the people in Ireland really understand golf, and they love golf. I mean, you know, you think of Christy O'Connor when he was playing. He was the best. Christy O'Connor actually was the best bad weather golfer I ever saw. That weather was bad. That man was something special. If he could have putted, if he could have putted better, he would have won a couple of opens. Never mind what. Mm. Well, you had you had several open winners, starting with uh, Fred Daly. I mean, I remember playing with Fred. Uh, then you, you've had several winners since then. It's wonderful. I mean, McElroy. You've had um, who else have you had? You've had. Uh, well, we've had. Audrey Carrington with two on the spin in 07 and 08. Then we've had Darren Clark in 2011. Didn't he win, did he win two, uh, uh, did he win two opens or three? Yeah, Paul, Paul won two opens in a row and became the first yeah. European in over a hundred years to win back-to-back yeah. opens. So he, he kind of, he, he opened the flood, effort. he fl- opened the floodgates. And I think most European gar- golfers who have, uh, since then, you know, gone on to win majors, and there have been quite a few. They all acknowledge Paul won the U.S. Open. McDowell won McDowell the U.S. Won Open the US in 2010. Open. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Rory you won produced, it in 2011. You, you produced unbelievable golfers, but you would think so, being such a wonderful sport and an important sport that people love. Mm. And we're gifted, really, with the perfect terrain, and so a lot of natural links land you know, presented itself, you know, back in the 1800s when they decided to bring golf to this country. Uh, They were kind of spoiled for choice. And, uh, you know, a lot of credit goes in many respects to the army. And the British army were often stationed in in Ireland, so they needed recreational facilities for, um, you know, those who were members of the army. So that's kind of part of the origins of the whole thing. And then you had old Tom yeah. Morris, Alistair McKenzie. They all came over and uh, helped design yes. these amazing places. Yes. I'd love to play Le Hinge. I've never played Le Hinge. I'd love to play there. I'm not sure if I played, is it Tralee? Yeah. Tralee? Yeah, so uh, you're your great so friend. Arnold Palmer designed that one. Phenomenal. Oh, did he? Yeah, yes. phenomenal. I'm really, I would love to uh, come along and see some of those great golf courses sometime. Because I've designed a few Lynx golf courses, and I must say, for me, Lynx golf courses is the epitome of golf. So first impressions of Port Marnock Golf Club then, uh, 1960. I mean, you're playing alongside, you know, the icon of South African golf at the time, uh, Mr. Bobby Locke, four-time Open champion, a man with an incredible story himself. Um, But in 1960, if I'm not mistaken, he'd had a car crash, so he had lost quite a bit of weight. And he was still very proudly, you know, playing for his country, but he was maybe a shadow of his former self. You know, we, we normally, when we look at Bobby Locke, he's quite rotund. He's very stylish. He's got the great wrists and he's got the phenomenal potting stroke. And a lot of, a lot of people were very anxious to see him again. He was a regular visitor to Irish shores for about 30 years at that point. But he didn't, he didn't look quite like the iconic Bobby Locke. Am I right in saying that? Absolutely remarkable. I was absolutely amazed because he was sort of half seeing out of one eye with his car accident, and he was shot through the back window, the tiny window of his car when it hit the train, and they lost his putter, and somebody found it 
I don't know where they parted in some village. Uh, and when we were playing there, I thought, oh, my goodness. I think we finished second to, I think it was Palmer and Sneed. And uh, I was really amazed that he could play that well with one and a half eyes. But he, he was something, he was still as good a putter as I've ever seen. Chipper and putter, chipper and putter, not only putter. But, uh, and then there was Roberto Di Vincenzo playing there. And I always, I always remember because Sam Sneed, quite conceivably, I think Ben Hogan's the best player that ever lived. But Sneed might have been the best player. And I remember Arnold coming off the course and saying to me, you know, I cannot believe how well that man plays golf. I, did, I never forgot that. And for Arnold to say that, you had to be very, very good. And, and you know, it's a shame he never won the Grand Slam. We were talking about that at lunch today at the golf club here. He made a six or a seven on the last hole of par five. He thought he needed a birdie and he tried to carry the trap. If he'd known he only needed a par, he would have played to the right of the trap and would have won the Grand Slam. He was some golfer. My, and the best athlete that golf has ever seen. Well, he certainly had charisma, but he was a young man and, and in you know on these shores, he was a bit of an unknown quantity. Uh, he was about to play in his first Open, the Centenary Open at St. Andrews the following week. And Which he won. Yes. No, he finished second to Kel Nagel, actually. Um, but he had won the Masters. He had won the US Open. Are you Open. talking about Arnold? Are you talking about Arnold or Steve? Yeah, Arnold. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, Arnold. Yes, yes. He finished second to Kel Nagel. Yeah. So, so he'd won the Masters. He'd won the US Open at Cherry Hills in that very famous um, tournament. Uh, Last round. Yeah, amazing. Um, shot the 65. He was five under. He drove the he drove the first green. He did, he did. Because I was standing on the tee on the second tee. Were you really? Yes, and he drove the first green. I mean, I've stood on that first tee, and it, it takes some doing to drive that one. You know, you're elevated. I mean, you can see it all in front of you, but still, you know, it it takes quite quite the the muscle to to do that. I want to, you know, that uh, it, it comes back as a story that happened in South Africa in December. I was playing with a, a pro who plays the regular tour, and he said, you know, when you and Palmer and Nicholas and Watson, uh, Trevino and Irwin won all those majors, there were only about 27 players that could really play. And I, I came back and did my homework during the lockdown. There were, we played, there were 58 major champions played. They don't have that many today. Those guys could play. And the ones prior to us, Hogan, Sneed, Nelson, Demerit, all those guys, they were unbelievable as well. So people must never forget how good the people were in the past. Now, can you imagine if Ben Hogan or any of us had played with this equipment that they play with today, where the ball goes 50 yards further, not 550, and you've got metal heads and no spike marks on the green, and every bunker's raked with a machine, in Timbuktu and in Ireland and in America, it's the same texture. Uh, knocking down spike marks, oh my goodness, and greens like you've never seen in your life. Uh, golf has taken a big, big move forward. Thank goodness, that's what we all strive and wanted to do. And as of now, we play for a million, or they play for a million dollar first prize, some weeks more than a million dollar. And let me tell you, they better appreciate it because the world's in a very precarious situation now. You might not be playing for that in the future. So you better save your money and not waste it 
and be very thankful and kind to the amateur golfer who's playing the game of golf because it's the amateur that is the heart of the game and the amateur is putting up that money for you to play for. It's a very good point and it's something that I, I hope we can get into in a, in a bigger way as, uh, you know, as the year unfolds because we're now halfway through. You know, what started out as 2020 and we were all kind of speculating as to, you know, what clarity it would bring, 2020 vision, everything. But Mother Nature is certainly dealing us quite the tough hand at the moment yes. and uh, it yes. needs some deep thought. It needs, you know, a lot of global unity and uh, we're all in this thing together and people, everyone needs to play their own part, however small, you know, I'm sure you'd agree that uh, it, it requires togetherness in terms of getting a handle on this virus and trying to contain it and trying to also find, um, you know, the, the right medicine, you know, uh, so that, you know, our medical professionals can, can really kind of help us all to kind of contain it uh, and deal with it. But we mustn't put fear in people's hearts and we mustn't put it out of proportion because more people are dying of flu, heart attacks, cancer, diabetes, car accidents. Now, we've got to have, the way I look at it, elderly people, be kept at home, people with bad immune systems get back at home, but the rest of us are going to get out of work. We can't have depression. And, you know, we even had uh, in the Times, in 1932 was a depression. And, you know, we've got to be careful we don't go back into that because it takes so long to recover from that. And people have got to have food on their tables to eat and live. So we've got to be very careful that, as always in everything you do. And my heart goes out to those that have died. But I've had a lot of death in my family. Mm. I understand what it is. But we've got to get things in the proper balance, I believe. You're so right. You're so right. You know, they tell you, that, for example, I went to the golf club today, or you go to a shopping mall. You touch the handle of the door as you go in. You touch the railing as you go in. You then buy something and you put it in your hand and you say, oh, I don't like it. You put it back on the shelf. By that time, everybody's touched it. So, you know, you go and you put your hand on a towel. They've washed the towel. The person's put the towel there. It's just, you go to the tap, somebody, you touch the tap, somebody's touched it. You open the door, somebody's opened the door. The other day I sat opposite the supermarket here while my daughter went in. 30 people while I was sitting there went in the front door. So there's 30 hands on the door. I don't know. I don't know how you avoid it. All I can say is you better, you better take a lot of vitamin C. You better be in as good a shape as you can possibly in fitness and build up a strong immune system. And I think that's the best way until we find some kind of medicine to prevent it. Well, I knew this would be a broad and wide-ranging conversation. Um, what we'll do now before we start talking about 1960 again is we'll play a bit of music because I know you love music and I've been fortunate to be around you at different Gary Player Invitational events in, in London and further afield. And you love to boogie. <laughs> You're a great man on the dance floor, it has to be said. But um, I'll let you pick the first piece of music. and be It can be either from 1960 or it can be a personal favourite. Um, you know, the, the, floor, the floor is yours, Mr. Player. What, what would you like to choose? Well, I wish I could give you a good Irish song, but I'd like to play a song. Paul Simon came to South Africa a long time ago, and he helped our black musicians so much. And there's a song, Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. 
and you get a bit of Paul Simon, but you get a lot of African beat, which is something you cannot beat. The Africans had a certain beat that nobody's ever had, and I just listen to that song continuously. She's a rich girl, she don't try to hide it, diamonds on the soles of her shoes. He's a poor boy, empty as a pocket. Empty as a pocket with nothing to lose Sing ta-na-na, ta-na-na-na She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes Ta-na-na, ta-na-na-na She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes 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 She's crazy, she got diamonds on the soles of her shoes Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues Diamonds on the soles of her shoes She was physically forgotten But then she slipped into my pocket with my car keys She said, you've taken me for granted Because I please you Wearing these diamonds And I could say, ooh, as if everybody knows what I'm talking about. As if everybody here would know exactly what I was talking about. I'm talking about diamonds on the soles of the shoes. Changes clothes and he puts on aftershave to compensate for his ordinary shoes. And she said, Honey, take me dancing, but they ended up by sleeping in a doorway by the bodegas and the lights on over Broadway, wearing diamonds on the soles of their shoes. And I could say, Everybody you would know exactly what I was talking about I'm talking about time 
got diamonds on the soles of my shoes, yeah Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues Diamonds on the soles of my shoes Mambazo, along with Paul Simon. The album was Graceland, released in 1986, if I'm not mistaken. Seems like yesterday, but I don't know, the years keep flying by, Mr. Blair. I'm delighted to have uh, the great Gary Blair, the Black Knight himself, um, with me live from his home in Santa Barbara. We're reflecting on many things, but we're concentrating as well on 1960 when he came to Ireland, along with Bobby Locke, to play for South Africa in the Canada Cup, which was an historic achievement, really, on behalf of the Golfing Union of Ireland to organise this. In 1958 in Mexico City, Ireland had won it with Christy O'Connor Sr. and Harry Bradshaw leading the way. And Harry Bradshaw was the pro at Port Marnock Golf Club, but he was unwell. He did not play for Ireland. Uh, Christy O'Connor did, alongside Norman Drew, who made a bit of history as well, because the previous year he had played Ryder Cup. And uh, seven years prior, he had played Walker Cup. So he became the first uh, golfer to achieve all three. And Norman recently celebrated his 88th birthday. And not far behind him is Gary Player. Gary's (laughs) going to be 85 in November. But um, you remember Norman Drew very well, I'm sure, from all of your tours. Very, very well indeed. I'm so pleased to hear he's alive and and doing well because all my golfing friends are dead. <laughs> and I and I'm still shooting far. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, which which actually is worth mentioning because when I was teeing this up during the week, um, and I was looking at different things to do with the Canada Cup, and uh, I was contacting your daughter Amanda, and she very proudly told me in an email then that earlier that day, so this is probably Wednesday or Thursday actually that you had beaten your age by 14 shots. So the yeah. form is good. Well, I'd like to be the first man to beat his age by 18 shots. <laughs> I've done 16. If I live long enough <laughs> and I say, well, I'll do it. But, uh, you know, today, if you stay healthy, you've got to be very thankful for it, haven't you? It's amazing. I mean, you know, and the beauty of technology as well is that I am looking at you sitting in a beautiful sofa in what looks to be a very nice living room in, in uh, your home or your daughter's home in Santa Barbara. Um, and you look amazing. I, I, like you are, you're kind of bionic, really. I don't know how you, well, you, I know how you do it. It's just a very regimented approach to life and exercise and, and wellness. Isn't that right? Well, wellness to me 
is everything. Health, if you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. And I've always exercised very hard and I continue to do it today. A lot of things that I don't eat, I don't eat bacon, ice cream and milk, sausages, white bread. Uh, I, I, a lot of things that I don't eat and a lot of good things that I do eat, a lot of vegetables, good vegetables and fruit. I'm very much a fruitarian, salads, and I eat a lot of um, plant-based diets. And, I, you know, I read a wonderful um, proverb the other day, a Tibetan proverb. You've got to eat half the amount that you eat if you want to live a long time. You've got to walk twice as much as you do, which is a message about exercise. And you've got to laugh three times as much as you do. And above all, you've got to have unmeasured love in your heart. And I can tell you, uh, Shane, that I laugh all day, every day. I'm a big, big giggler. And I'm convinced that that's one of the greatest medicines in the world. And Shane, it's free. <laughs> How many things are free? <laughs> the best things free. in life are free. The best things in life are free. free. Yeah. If yeah. I could, if I could add one more to that, and I think you'll agree, it's actually to say hello a few times a day. Just you know, look people in the eye and say hello, good morning, or whatever it is. Make a connection. But if you've got, yeah. but if you've got unmeasured love in your heart, you do that. Yeah, that's true. Because that's you true. love everybody. You love everybody, and you like to see people. I talk to people all day long, the green people, the guys cutting the greens in a hotel. Uh, thank you for keeping the floors clean. An old lady in the airport, I say, gee, you're doing a great job. I talk to everybody. I know you do. No, you're remarkable. And it's fantastic to watch. And it's it's inspirational. And uh, the last time we met was actually in late January or very early February down in Saudi Arabia. Uh, there was a big golf, yeah. golf forum down there. And... Uh, you know, I, I, I always kind of observe you and it's remarkable just the energy. Uh, there's It's a genuine vitality that you have and it's an energy that you transmit. But you're forever connecting with people. And I've seen you do that with all every, from all walks of life. I mean, um, you just you just like connecting with people, don't you? Well, thank you. Thank you. You've got to, you know, you've got to have God in your heart and you've got to have love. And, you know, when you think, People make your life. If you imagine not having any people, people make your life for you. And, you know, to make friends is, is just such a joy. I, I go to the golf club today and I'm saying hello to all the ladies and the members and it makes me happy. Yeah, It makes me happy. I think it, there's so many wonderful things in this world to enjoy and nature. And you look at your country, I mean, you've got nature at its best. Uh, it's just a, a marvelous, marvelous country. And I, I think of your country, I always think of people that are smiling and joking and having a great sense of humor. You, you live in a wonderful place. Yeah, it's pretty special. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, I think it's coming home to more people right now, certainly on this island, you know, north and south, east and west, that it is a pretty good place. And, you know, they've handled COVID-19 very well with decreasing numbers. But now the, the, the real concern is um, just about kind of halting any ambitions to travel abroad and also pretty much kind of halting people visiting here at the moment. You know, this is, this is the Irish way of containing everything. And we, we're, we're, we've been led by some amazing people like Dr. Tony Hollihan and um, in particular our Prime Minister, although he's uh, just been replaced in the last 24 hours, but uh, he's a doctor, Leo Varadkar, so... An impressive man, multi-ethnic, and um, 
he's been doing a great job. You know, he's got a great empathy. Um, so yeah, look, it, it requires good leadership. And it also requires it a unity of spirit with regard to what you're doing. Now, there will always be rogue elements and it's the same everywhere. You know, the young people think you they're going to, yeah. Young people you think they're going to last forever, Gary. You know, they think they're going to live forever. So no. there's carefree well, abandon. It's being, it's being optimistic, which is good. Yeah. Better than thinking you're going to die tomorrow. Yeah. But the one thing that you, you see, I think your country has a lot of respect for each other. In America at the moment, they're burning uh, cars, they're burning buildings, they are shooting policemen, they are hitting innocent people in the streets. Uh, it is so dreadful to see. You know, I was uh, spent a lot of time with President Mandela, and he had no hatred and no revenge, and he, he spoke about Ubuntu, which is a word, work together. Mahatma Gandhi did that. Winston Churchill was phenomenal. Martin Luther King, all these people said you get rid of hate with love. At the moment over here, you have people that are just full of hatred. Mm. And it's just so sad to see it. I cannot stay pulling statues down. And I saw the other day they were defacing Winston Churchill's statue. I couldn't believe my eyes to see this. You've got to have law and order. You cannot live. I think it was Bernard Shaw that said a country without law and order is a cancerous society. And at my age of nearly 85, I do know one thing. You've got to have law and order. You cannot exist with a decent life for everybody if you don't have law and order and respect for each other. Mm. Well, we're veering away from 1960 in the Canada Cup quite, quite well here, aren't we? <laughs> well, quite honestly, you had to. That, let me tell you something. In the Canada Cup, you had to have respect for this wonderful game and your opponents. So it's a. You know, it goes across life, having respect for your wife, your friends, for everybody. So, you know, it applies to all things. And, I mean, golf is such a very, very difficult game. I don't know of any subject that lasts for one second that probably three million words have been written about it. Mm. Very good. Very good point. Yeah, incredible. And, you know, when you think of the different theories that people have come up with, it's (laughs) Well, you take a man like Tiger Woods, who was on the verge of becoming the greatest player that ever lived. He got into a few problems, and had he not, he would have won at least 20 majors. But be that as it may, you know, here he was winning the U.S. Open by 15 shots, not five, 15. The next week he's having a lesson, and then the following time he has another lesson, and the man couldn't play at all. Why he was having lessons? Because he wanted to get better, but to the detriment, he was getting worse. Now he's singing with his own ideas and he's playing beautifully again. So, you know, this game of golf, it's a disease. It's not a game. <laughs> and we all know a hang of a lot about nothing. And it's a, an island, I know this young man was playing with his father. And his father hit the ball in the rough and he hit it in the middle of the fairway in a divot. And he said to his father, Dad, this is not very fair, this game. And his father said, it ain't meant to be fair. And that's it's this game of golf, the longer I live and the more I play it, I'm telling you something, it's an education better than any university can give you. Well, you know, you, you mentioned law and order and the need for law and order. I mean, one of the beauties of the game of golf is that you have to play it by the rules. You have to. You have to. And you have, you have to. to. You, and, you and, cannot and, sign the wrong foot. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, sorry, Giraffe, but there's Roberto de Vincenzo 
a billion people see him get a three on the 71st hole in the Masters, and he signs for a four, it stays there with a billion witnesses. Doesn't matter. I was late once in my entire year of 50, almost 70 years of playing by two seconds. And the man came down the fairway and said, Gary, you were two seconds late. I said, come on, what are you talking about, two seconds? I said, how can you prove that? He drove me back to the first tee, and there was that automatic, you know, Rolex watch on the tee, and it said two seconds. Wow. <laughs> and what two you sharp were, penalty. Two sharp penalty. It's amazing. So it's, amazing. it's one hang of a game. This You've got to have patience. Mm. You've got to have courage. It's just you've got to prepare yourself mentally. You've got to accept adversity all the time, which is life. I don't, I've yet to meet somebody who doesn't have a lot of adversity in his life. Mm. And the one thing that made me become a world champion was I had lots of adversity and suffering as a young man. And it taught me so much. And I can honestly say, Shane, it's not boasting. I never choked mm. because I didn't win every time I had an opportunity to, but I never choked because I, I made a comparison of what I went through as a young boy. And that was Mickey Mouse compared to what I went through. I said, man, I'm going to give it my best. If it works, it works. But I didn't choke. And, you know, to win big major championships, it's the mind. The mind is such an important thing. We haven't even scraped the surface of the mind. What's the difference between a star and a superstar? It's the mind. That's all. The mind. Now, you say, what is the mind? Well, it's called it. And nobody can describe it. You cannot define it. All the psychiatrists have tried to work it out, but nobody can. It's, a, it's something, it's all, I think for me, it was a divine gift. And you've got to be one great putter. If you've got a good mind and you're a great putter, look at Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson, two of the worst drivers of a golf ball I ever saw, and they were one and two in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not drive for show, it's putt for dough, laddie. For sure, for sure. Okay, before we start talking about the Canada Cup, let's play another piece of music. And uh, this song was a huge hit. It was probably their biggest ever hit. And it happened to be around about the time that you were arriving in Ireland. And it was massive, a worldwide hit for the Everly Brothers. Um, I'm not sure if you met the Everly Brothers. You've met everyone. Did you ever meet Don and Phil? No. (laughs) No, I didn't meet them, but I certainly had a wonderful time with Elvis. Yes, we'll get back to Elvis in a moment. Right now, though, here is the big international worldwide hit for the Everly Brothers. And this was number one as Mr. Player and Mr. Locke arrived in Dublin to compete in the Canada Cup at Port Marnock Golf Club in June of 1960. This is Cathy's Clown.
song incredible harmonies um does that take you back it does it also what takes me back to the canada cup at port monarch first of all port monarch was a great golf course i don't know how it is today uh with the modern equipment that has actually uh destroyed many golf courses but it was a magnificent golf course and what i really loved was the the ambience of the club and the galleries. If I'm not mistaken, we all stood there at the prize giving and posted to the galleries of Ireland. Fantastic. There was something. But you see, they understood golf. Mm. They could they could feel the pain with you. They could enjoy the great times with you. They could appreciate great shots because they, they understand the game of golf, which is very, very significant. Yeah, well, in 11 years earlier, the, the amateur championship, which was a, was a major back then, if you think in Bobby jo- Jones' terms, uh, it was played for the first time outside the UK and it was played at Port Marnock Golf Club. Now, there's a political element to why that happened. Um, but it was a big win for a guy called Max McCready and all the greats played in it. And it was, uh, you know, a phenomenal event uh, to see hosted on these shores. And then two years later, uh, at Royal Port Rush in 1951, Max Faulkner beat all comers uh, to win the Open Championship, which was played, you know, yes. on Irish soil for the first time. And I know you're a big fan of Royal Portrush, um, but that was significant. So then you fast forward nine years, and here comes the Canada Cup, which is really, it was like the Olympics of golf. You know, it was it was only six years in existence at this stage, but it was a significant coming together of the golfing nations. And it was a celebration of golf. And here you were, you know, playing for your country. And you were a young pro. You were just 24 years of age, but you were a man on the mission. You were the Open champion from the previous year at Muirfield. And you're playing alongside Bobby Locke. It's the first round. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, you had a bit of a medical condition. I, I, and I wasn't aware of this, but how true is it that you had an asthma attack or you were struggling anyway, certainly with your breathing, which resulted in the organizers giving you another 50 minutes to um, gather yourselves. And you were playing alongside Mexico, which featured Roberto De Vicenzo, uh, incidentally, even though he was an Argentine player. Um, Obviously, he had been working in Mexico and he had had whatever clarifications that he needed to actually represent Mexico. Uh, But he was was waiting with his partner to, to play with yourself and Mr. Locke. But... Can you take us back to that day and and the illness yeah. and everything? Well, I had asthma, which I'd never had in my life before. But I was just going to a, a stage where I was starting to get hay fever and I couldn't walk to the first tee. Here I was in the fitness of my life, 
and I couldn't get to the first tee. And they had the most wonderful Irish doctor there. They said, I know just the thing for you. Come in the locker room, bend over, map in my bottom, and I shot 65. <laughs> I looked for him for the rest of my life. I said, bring that needle with you wherever I go, man. I'll give you 10%. I mean, it was just unbelievable how it cleared it up in a matter of 20 minutes, and I was ready to go. Wow. I'll never forget. It was from absolute, honestly, I was a cripple. I couldn't get to the first seat. Wow. I wonder, was it Dr. Billy O'Sullivan himself, who was one of the, you know, the prime organizers, a fantastic international amateur? I wonder, well, you know, there's quite a few... Uh, members of the medical community or members of the club. But uh, in 1960, that's a curious one. We'll have to find out who that doctor was that kind of caused this. I'd like this. to know what was, what was the juice he gave me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. You shot quite the round of golf. Um, but, you know, you, you're by this stage in your career, you know, you're you're an established professional. I mean, you're still in the early stages, but you've you've had major success. You have a belief mechanism. And you like playing on the big stages. Um, so a guy like you likes getting into that zone. It's all about birdies. It's all about just taking on the course. Uh, what kind of a zone was it for you, you know, in that first round as you shot the course record? I was very happy with the golf course for a start. But I always try to say to myself, uh, you know, don't tell yourself that this course is no good or that course is no good because... That's the examination that's put in front of you. And you have to answer the questions to pass. And uh, so I always said this golf course, I love this golf course. Every golf course I said to myself, I just love this course. But, but Port Monarch was a special course. So A, that was nice. I was playing in front of wonderful people in a wonderful country, playing with a man like Bobby Locke, also a man like Roberto Di Vincenzo, who was a marvelous golfer. Mar if he was born in America, we would have really found out just how good he was. There are a lot of ifs and ands in golf, but unfortunately they don't mean anything. But I, I was just happy and enjoying myself. And, you know, when I played, I got into like a mood. Um, I really hardly recognized any of my friends when I was playing. I actually, I went into a, um, into a zone. It was hard to explain. Tiger Woods did that. Tiger Woods did that all the time. He was in a zone. And uh, it's hard to explain to people. And I, when, I went, uh, when I won the U.S. Open to win the Grand Slam, I went into that zone uh, all week. I never went out, and I went to the front of the scoreboard, and I visualized myself winning. And I prayed not to win. I prayed for patience, enjoy the adversity. That's hard to do, to make yourself enjoy adversity. I was very good at that because I knew I was going to have to face up to it. So mentally, mentally, I always prepared myself to try and be ready. I didn't worry about these beautiful swings and long hitting and this and that. Uh, all the bank manager wants to know is, what did you score that? <laughs> it's all about the bottom line, isn't it? It's all about the bottom yeah, line. My bank manager never said to me, how are you swinging? You never asked that. <laughs> but you know something, as I mentioned earlier, that, that 65 that you shot, I mean, that was the course record until 1989 when Sandy Lyle shot a 64 at the Carroll's Irish Open at Port Marnock. Um, that's that's quite the achievement given the amount of Irish Opens that had been played subsequent to that and the big championships. Um, you kind of brought it to its knees in many respects. Um, the, it, the 18th used to be a par 5, it was reduced to a par 4, so it was a new layout. Um, 
And the corsets, uh, from what I've read about it, I mean, it was a very dry spring, which was unusual for Ireland, because obviously, you know, the reason why we're so green over here is because we get plenty of yeah. rain, which is, yeah. is a good thing, you know, and it's certainly good for golf courses. But this was a particularly dry course. Uh, the rough, you know, perhaps wasn't as kind of wispy as it normally would be, but the fairways, you know, were giving you a bit of run. But notwithstanding, it's... it's you, they're, they're tough greens to hit and hold when they're in yes. this sort of condition. Yes, you know, what was your correct. tactic or what was it What was it about your your kind of knowledge and love of links play that you you always managed to, you know, kind of master how to play that type of terrain? The most important thing I felt with the fairways being a little hard was keep the ball in play. That was of vital importance. I was working the ball right to left and left to right, which was ever required. And I was driving very well, and I said, don't be too greedy, because if you miss the greens, you know, you could take quite a severe bounce away. Get the ball on the green, and I was putting very, very well, and my my mind was very, very good, and I was proud to be representing South Africa uh, as a team. And, uh, you know, South Africa has been a remarkable golfing country like Ireland. We've won 23 major championships, which post-war is more than any country other than America. Mm. Quite remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. Ireland is creeping up on you. We're creeping up on you slowly but surely. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But we have a lot of young guys uh, playing golf. But, you know, we have, uh, well, our systems, you know, today in South Africa, you can have a team. And if you, you might be the best in the team or in the top five, but they'll replace you with people of color now, irrespective. It's not done on merit anymore, which for me, uh, apartheid is gone and finished for over 25 years now. We shouldn't be doing that anymore. The best must uh, be in a team. Mm. I think that's very, very important. I could understand the, 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 the uh, what they went through, putting people in teams. Yes, that is very understandable at the time. But uh, now you know, the best has got to play. Yeah, and so we go through. We still go through this where they put in color instead of the best. Mm. You know, it's an interesting uh, thing to see the the young elite come over to these shores every year as they do now, and it's part of their development. And golf RSA have to be commended, and uh, it's been very interesting to get to know Eden Thompson and his team, and all the others who work behind the scenes in golf RSA to you know develop the youth and. Um, you know, they come over and they play in many Irish championships and UK championships, obviously. Um, you know, and it's all part of their development. And they know how crucial it is to expose the talent to links play, to uh, the terrain, the different conditions and the level of competition. Um, and that's why you're seeing, you know, all of the success, you know, and, and the amount of South African players who are enjoying success. So what you want now is that those guys now to start winning majors and following on from Charles Schwartzel and Louis Westes and, um, you know, because they've, they've kind of led the way of, I suppose, the current generation. But the future generation, it looks very healthy down there. Very. And what I would just love before I die is to see us have a black tiger woods. And that can happen if we can find the young, the, the right young black man who's really dedicated, who has a passion who's hungry. Uh, we've had a few come along with wonderful uh, ability, but didn't follow through with the 
the final things that are hard to tell you what matters, but there's something that is is part of it that I was talking about. Mm. And uh, But we've got wonderful young black athletes in our country, and it uh, wouldn't surprise me to see one guy just burst through and win a major. That would be a great day for South African golf, and world golf for that matter. As it happened over here, you know, it changed dramatically. When a black man like Tiger Woods comes along and wins all these majors, how it changes golf in the world, it gets the needle moving, and then VJ Singh comes along, and Lee Elder and Charlie Sifford. And, you know, it's just, when I think of Charlie Sifford, I, I, I really get goosebumps because when I first came to America, I don't know if I told you, I met him in Los Angeles, and I said, why are you not playing? He says, I'm not allowed to play in these sort of white tournaments. And so I, be, I became very good friends with him, went to his club in Cleveland, I went to bat with the PGA for him, and then when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, he asked a white South African, Gary Player, to induct him into the Hall of Fame. One of the greatest honors I've ever had. Mm. I mean, it was so great to see him. And the way he said, when I crossed the road, I looked to the left, I looked to the right. For three months, I looked to the left and right five times because I sure as hell didn't want to be killed before I was inducted into <laughs> the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Were you there? Were you there? Not at that one, no. No, I've been lucky to attend a couple of them, but no, that was, I mean, I've seen the video of that. Phenomenal. Well, uh, do, me, do me a favor, Google that 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 induction. It's quite yeah. touching. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, and you're part of the selection committee now, aren't you, with the World Golf Hall of Fame? No, I have been for years, but now they've, they've gone on to others, which is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, Jack Nicholas and I are not on that uh, committee anymore, which is good. And uh, so I don't know who's on it now, but uh, they'll do a good job. They do. They do. Just a couple of things then to finish just with regard to 1960, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish with a bit of Elvis Presley, and it's a significant piece of music as well, because it, it was number one not long after, just a couple of weeks after the Canada Cup in, uh, in 1960. Um, but playing alongside Mr. Locke, uh, what was that like for you? He was a wonderful gentleman on the golf course. If you hit a nice shot, he said, well done. Uh, if he, I never saw him lose his temper at all. You know, a lot of young guys, they miss a three-footer and they stand there for a minute or two looking at it, tapping down a so-called spike park and like, they, they stand there so they're not supposed to miss a three-footer or a four-footer and, and nobody cares a damn. Miss the putt, hold it out and keep going. And that's what Locke did. He took, he never got upset if he had a bad shot or had a bad break. You'd never know the difference. He had an outstanding mind, was very relaxed, only hit about five practice balls before he played with a tie and a shirt on and didn't worry about hitting the ball a long way. Never interested him in hitting it a long way. But boy, he wanted a chip and putt. That's what he wanted to do. And I was surprised he grew uh, so tall. You see, I stayed short because I was always bending down, picking the ball out of the hole. But he never, he kept growing. And uh, he was a wonderful short game player. And I learned a lot from him just watching him, his demeanor. Uh, it was outstanding, you know, and he was so relaxed. And he put his shoes on in slow motion and. Uh, he drive his car in slow motion. I used to get so irritated. And I wanted to get to the club and practice. <laughs> he did five balls and I wanted to hit a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
Um, I've, I'm told, I mean, and you can verify this, but um, Harry Bradshaw was the, the great old pro at Port Marnock for so many years and had won the uh, Canada Cup in 58, as I mentioned, in Mexico City with Christy O'Connor. And um, his short game rivaled Locke, I am told. Now, it wasn't. You'd often hear that he was maybe second to Locke in terms of just that ability with the wedge and the putter. What are your own personal reflections on Harry Bradshaw and his talent and, and the man? Extremely. You know, it's a name that a young man today would have no idea about. And yet it's vivid and clear in my mind. What a golfer he was, Shane. And they call him Seesaw Harry Bradshaw. And, you know, here he was with a swing, which he took his club back well on the inside, which I like. I never liked it as a young man. Now I believe the club that you've got to get your hands on the inside going back. And he played golf and he had this, he always wrapped the ball. Wow. Wrapped the ball on the greens, which was so good. And he was the most unlucky human being ever to not win the Open when he hit the ball in a bottle. Now, when I tell people this, they don't believe me. He hits the ball in the bottle and he had to play it. Now, can you imagine anything? How ridiculous could somebody in those days give a ruling as such? It's just barbaric. He hits the ball in the bottle and he's got to play it and he loses the Open. Mm. He could, yeah. have, he could have lost his eye. Yeah. I mean, you'd think that common sense would prevail. I know, yeah. it's 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 It was a cruel blow. It was Royal St. George's. It was 1949. Yes. And uh, he yes. lost the playoff to Mr. Locke. But, yes. you know, he, he yeah, his ball landed in a broken uh, stout bottle or something like that that was on the course. And it was he was cursed, really, in some, in some respects because, yeah, his talent yes. deserved, deserved a big one. You know, and that was the biggest he of did. them all. And he came to South Africa. When I was a young man, I walked around with him. There was uh, Harry Bradshaw, Fred Daly, uh, and then there was a man called uh, Ken Bowfield. Mm-hmm. And there was one other player, I can't remember his name at the Oh, John Panton. Yeah. John Panton. Great names. And they came to South Yeah, and I walked around with him a lot. But I always loved watching Harry Bradshaw. Yeah. Because I just loved his short game, his relaxed uh, demeanor. And uh, I always remember I said to him when I played one year in Ireland, I said, Harry, how do you do? He said, I was out to Turkey Tree. <laughs> and I said, what about the background? Oh, I came back in a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, had, he was a lovely guy. Yeah, he and he'd a, always say, you remember you'd say, you'd say something, you'd say, Harry, uh, is that so? He'd go, <laughs> he'd never say yes yes <laughs> you know how the Irishman does it <laughs> I can't do that <laughs> yeah I know but he, he like yeah, I, I, I never knew the man I saw him once or twice I used to love listening to him on the commentaries of the Irish Open when they'd be played at Port Marnock because he'd always come in and he'd join Peter Alice or Peter Townsend or um, you know there was a number of other Roddy Carr you know on the commentary and he just, yes. he was so laid back on the commentary as well. I mean, do you know what the great thing about him, I think, was that he was just so comfortable within himself. And he, yes. he, he played golf uh, with his personality. That, you know, so yes. that was his style. And that yes. was a real reflection yes. of who he was. Yeah, what a golfer. What a golfer. Really and truly, 
have you given him this modern day equipment? There's so many names of yesterday that I look at. Today, a man brought me um, a golf digest magazine from years ago, and I finished third in the tournament. It played in uh, Utah, and I looked down the list, and the names that I saw there, that everybody's completely oblivious of, and they were such good golfers. Honestly, it, um, it amazed me, and that's why when this South African guy said there are only about 27 guys that you guys had to beat. And I came back and did my homework. He had no idea what he's talking about. There were, as I say, 57, 58 major championship winners. Mm. They're not 57, 58 majors today that you got to beat. In fact, if I say to you today, who's the best player in the world? You can't tell me. There is no one best player in the world. If I had to say who I think comes to my mind as the best player in the world, I'd say Rory McIlroy. Mm. But his putting is not really, really consistent. If his putting was consistent, he would thump him because he's got the best swing. He has got the most beautiful golf swing and he's, you know, he attacks, but uh, his putting is a bit suspect. Mm. What's he going to have to do? You know, because he needs to join you and Mr. Nicholas, Mr. Hogan, Mr. Sarazen, Mr. Hogan. There's only five of you who've done the Grand Slam the career slam. And he's just one victory away from joining that. He's done everything else pretty much, Mr. Player. He ha- he really has, you know. Um, He'll do it. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think we all believe that he will do it. And if, 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 if his form is anything to go by in terms of how he does what he does, uh, he figures things out for himself. He is in charge. Good. And Good. whether it happens in November or whether it happens next April, or it happens in 2022. It's an eternal quest, you know, and I think he is, only he can answer the question. But he is, he's, he's, he's put himself in the mix. He's led it. He's had leads of four shots going into a final round. He's watched others win it in his company. Um, he's pretty much kind of ticking all the boxes prior to this what I think will be a crowning achievement, but when that's going to happen, who knows? I mean, the golfing gods, you know, they, they, they do shine upon certain people. Um, so yes, will they shine on I, him? Rory, Rory has the most beautiful golf swing in the world. He's so talented, so talented. There's nobody that quite has the talent he has. So he's got to win the Grand Slam. Mm. And the timing has got to be right. He's got to have his mind right. That's the most important thing. I'd love to have sat down with him, which will never happen, and tell him how I prepared to win for the Grand Slam and what I did, which is 10 times more than anybody's ever prepared to win the Grand Slam. I went through a whole regiment that comprised of so many things to prepare my mind. Your mind has got to be right. He has the ability, more ability than anybody else. So the only way he's going to do it is with the mind. Mm -hmm. And he will do it. Mm -hmm. He will do it. Mm -hmm. And make it a club of six. Yeah, and it'll be so good for golf. That's what golf needs at the moment. They need another Grand Slam winner. And uh, I'm very, very confident. And he couldn't have a golf course, quite honestly, Shane, that suits him better than Augusta. Mm. That's why he'll do it, because he's got the course that really suits his game. Mm. Well, you know, you won it in 61 for the first time. Um, so... 
pretty much. What's that? That's like, uh, so that was June 60 that you were here for the Canada Cup. Um, so li- literally kind of 10 months later, you won your second major. And then you won the PGA. And and then you, it's it's amazing that your first four wins, major wins, happened to be the individual majors. So by the time you won your fourth major, you had achieved the career slam. Phenomenal. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Yeah. But you went on to accumulate nine in total and then nine as a senior. It's a remarkable story. Um, and look, I, I, I really... Can't thank you enough for joining me uh, as we reflect on 60 years ago, a significant kind of anniversary in Irish golf. And uh, you've always been such a welcome visitor to our shores. And please keep coming back once we get all our travel things sorted. I know you're, you know, you're not in a bad place, though, in Santa Barbara, I have to say. (laughs) So, And you're surrounded by family as well. So, you know, you're in in a good spot. Um, Give our best and our love to Vivian. And if we can finish with one piece of music and perhaps you tell the story because uh, just a couple of weeks after the Canada Cup in 1960, Elvis Presley had yet another big number one. And it's a phenomenal song called It's Now or Never, which I'm sure is kind of a philosophy that you have employed going into final rounds. Um, Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's now or never, especially when you hit the back nine on Sunday. You know what I mean? That's probably your perfect spot. It's now or never. (laughs) So we'll play that song, but perhaps you just kind of just share your own experience of meeting the king himself. When was it? I win win the Masters and I go on that there's either Good Morning America or some show. And the commentator says to me after speaking for a while, what do you like besides golf? I said, well, I like horses as much as I like golf, racehorses. And I said, I love music. I said, give me that guitar there. And there was a guitar there. And I said, you can do anything. But don't step on my blue suede shoes. So Elvis sees it. And I was going to say, he sent me an SMS, but it wasn't. It was a telegram. <laughs> I want to meet you. I said, King, I want to meet you. And I happened to be going to LA. And I walked in. He was doing the movie called Hawaii. And I had a shirt and a tie on. And as I walked in, he saw me. He said, cut. And he went in the room. And he put a jacket on. And he came out. He said, how do you do, sir? Very, very well mannered with that real Tennessee accent. And he said, I wonder, then he took his jacket off and he put a club in his hand. He had a grip that looked like a cow giving birth to a roll of barbed wire. <laughs> or he's hauling a Harley Davidson motorcycle, you know, like this, like the claw. So we got his hands right. He says, what's important? I don't know if you can see it on your screen. Yeah. But anyway, I do it when I'm sitting down. And he, I said, well, Elvis, you've got to learn to use your hips, man. He says, the hips? I said, yes. He says, you're talking to the right man. He goes. Zip, 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 zip with his hips. And then he goes, hold the club like that. I said, man, you got it, baby. <laughs> but that was so nice. And you know what was so sad? That this man, you see, I love people who give people, who contribute to society. Yeah. Whether it be, it's in the art, whether it's in history, whether it's in uh, whatever the subject may be, I have a great a desire for learning and education. And so whatever you are contributing to society is important. And he gave everybody such great joy, and he dies at 42 with the terrible thing of drugs. And this is what we've got to make young people realize. Give examples of wasted lives through drugs. Mm. And there's so many young people on drugs today. Stay away from it. Life is too beautiful. 
and you can you ruin your whole life, and that's so sad. And he was a great example of stay away from drugs. Well, it's a salutary tale. It's a salutary lesson. And you have led by example. You're about to turn 85 in November. And if I can say it again, you are bionic. You're, ah, you. <laughs> you're a remarkable man. Uh, we're going to finish with this fabulous Elvis track. When he was in his prime, it's 1960. It's, it's, uh, it's August. And uh, it's, a, it's a lovely way to finish. And yeah. maybe we should all kind of take that to the back nine. Uh, when we're playing in our club medal competition. I love that. <laughs> it's I love now that. or never. <laughs> there are no mulligans. <laughs> no, there are no mulligans in life. Uh, listen, um, thank you so much, Mr. Player. It's always a pleasure. All right. My love to you in Ireland. God bless Ireland. It's now or never Your smile so tender My heart was captured My soul surrendered I spent a lifetime Waiting for the right time Now that you're near The time is here At last It's Just like a willow, we would cry an ocean If we lost true love and sweet devotion Your lips excite me, let your arms invite me For who knows when we'll meet again Now or never, my love won't wait. It's now or never.
1930 podcast is a niche media production. Any and all unauthorised use of the material will be in breach of copyright. <laughs>